Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. But can you imagine that? Just going on a bender, waking up days later and, and the police are telling you, hey, look, uh, you know, you've been charged with this, this crime. And what is it? You tried to kill your wife. That actually was sent out to 600 million people around the world, which was, when you consider that Live Aid was a billion, mm-hmm. it wasn't far behind that. I wouldn't say we had similar problems, but we had problems and we were kind of talking to each other through it. It was it was really just one of those lifetime, you know, bucket list things. I'm glad I got a chance to do it. Welcome to episode two of the Vintage Rock Pod. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thank you once again for listening. It really is appreciated. Uh, It's officially episode two, although you may have noticed we put out a special during the week following the sad death of Eddie Van Halen. If you've not had a chance to listen to that yet, then please do so. In the uh, hours following the sad news, I managed to speak to a few people to get their thoughts and reflections on the great man, including author Kevin Dodds, who wrote Edward Van Halen, the definitive biography, and from Planet Rock, uh, Drive Time presenter Darren Reddick, as well as a few others on there as well. It's well worth a listen. They've got stories to tell hear about Eddie's career and the legacy that he leaves behind as well Uh, and for the passing listeners yes it's much more than just jump quick hello as well to everyone that's been in touch since episode one I really appreciate all the feedback you've given me Uh, again if you could head over to the social channels Facebook Instagram that kind of thing like and follow the page Vintage Rock Pod and you'll get to see video clips from the guests I have on and other updates surrounding the podcast too there's also a YouTube channel so you can see the interviews as well the full interview with last week's guest Kenny Jones with bits we couldn't squeeze into the podcast is on there with a few other bits and bobs to keep you entertained too. But on this episode, I've got a great guest lined up for you. A man who is part of one of the world's biggest selling rock groups with sales of over 100 million records. They had the first album to sell a million copies on CD. Remember that compact disc? And according to the Guinness Book of Records, they've spent over 1,100 weeks, 1,100 weeks on the UK charts, which is the fifth most ever, incredibly. And all this while not being the stereotypical rock band. They didn't court major controversy. Uh, although they were arguably the poster song of the MTV era, the frontman wasn't keen on the idea. They preferred to play live and perform rather than do the press. There was nothing major flashy or over the top about them but they were brilliant the music it's hard to define i've read them described as roots rock or blues rock or jazz rock or pub rock or a mixture of all of them so it's incredible to think of what they have achieved my guest along with mark knopfler is the only founding member and ever present member of the band dire straits he was a key part of all the music they created played Live Aid, headlined the Nelson Mandela 70th birthday tribute concert. They won three Brit Awards, four Grammy Awards, two MTV Video Music Awards, and in 2018 were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. My guest on episode two of the Vintage Rock Pod is Dire Straits bass player John Ilsley, and I started off by getting to know about how the band first got together. Life's a series of circumstances, I've come to the conclusion, and you have choices in your life where you put yourself maybe slightly at risk of, of things going wrong or you take the safe road. And I've always taken a slightly um, 
unsafe approach to things. I'm, I'm probably a bit safer now than I used to be, but when I was younger, I would take risks. And so I, I went to college late and ended up in a council flat and David Knopfler became my flatmate. And as a consequence of that, I met his Mark. Mark um, and, um, you know, we just got on very well and we shared a, the same interest in music, which is very important when you want to try and play together. You've got to have a love of the thing that you, you, you know, you, that obsesses you. So that was kind of an easy, it was an easy relationship to get into and it's still a, it's still a great pleasure today. So, you know, it's lasted for 43 years so far. Um, you, you spoke about you had the same sort of musical taste as Mark then at the time. Now, back in the mid to late seventies, it was all punk was coming through. That was big. So what were you guys listening to? Well, we, we, we shared a lot of people like Ry Kuda, Chuck Berry, you know, uh, Little Feet, Oh, J.J. Kale and uh, just uh, quite a lot of American music, I think. Uh, and of course, you know, we, we'd grown up with the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and all that lot. I mean, which, which was which was actually in the early sixties was a very exciting time. So you you hang on to those early those early musical memories, and um, you know, we we were exactly the same age. So we we'd grown up really sort of among, alongside each other, despite the fact that he was in Newcastle and I was in Leicestershire. But I mean, we, we obviously were listening to the same kinds of music. And it was a wonderful time to grow up. I don't think there's ever been an explosion like there was in the early 60s uh, with rock and roll in, 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 in the UK. And of course, now the UK is, is still seen as being the hotbed of invention, if you like, with music uh, by a lot of people in the world. Indeed. So let's cut straight through to the first album then and the first single, um, Sultans of Swing. Now, bands can only really dream of having created such a song like Sultans of Swing, and that was the first one. I mean, that's pretty in- incredible introduction to the world, isn't it? Uh, well, it, it, it seems that way now, but it, at the time, it was just another song, actually. I know that it sounds rather sort of uh, blasé, but um, you know, we, 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 we made this album and... Um, Sultans of Swing was picked off it as the single. And uh, initially it didn't really sort of take off in the UK. It took off in America first and in Europe. But the UK was a little slow with it, um, which didn't really make any difference at the end of the day. But suddenly everybody latched onto this song. And so we thought, oh, this, (laughs) this, you know, it took us a bit by surprise. And, uh, of course, it's become synonymous with the whole um, beginnings of the band and whatever. I can't I hate to think of how many times I've played it. It's got to be be well over a thousand times, I think. That's incredible. Maybe even more. And I still make mistakes, but never mind. We'll (laughs) we'll talk about that. Um, We're all human. Yeah, yeah, we're all human. Um, The first album did, you know, it it did sort of take off and I think it took the band a bit by surprise. We had to do a lot of catching up, you know, with playing to more people and such like, uh, which, um, you know, when you've been a little rock and roll band playing in pubs and clubs in in London, suddenly you're playing in front of a thousand people and then 2000 people. There's a bit of a sharp learning curve. It is indeed. And obviously the band continued to, to grow and improve and get bigger and bigger and, and get more fans and, and bigger record sales. And then you ended up having your first number one album in the UK anyway, with um, Love Over Gold back in 1982. Now, how did that feel to have a number one album? Well, it's always, it's always, it, it's like number one in anything. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it feels good. I mean, uh, there's no doubt about it. I, 
you know, the band by this time, Love of Gold, you know, got quite a, a following worldwide. So, you know, it, it, we'd done a lot of work before we'd got to that particular point. So having a number one album on top of it all was just sort of like the icing on the cake, if you like. But as I said to you earlier, we didn't really think about all that kind of stuff. Numbers and figures and charts and stuff was never an obsession. Um, it was really, okay, how are we going to play this gig? What songs are we going to play? When are we going to make the next record? And it, it, was, it was more approached in a more sort of um, artistic way rather than a sort of like, oh, we're the biggest band on the planet kind of approach, you know. And uh, which is the reason why we could all still walk down the street and nobody knows who the hell you are, you know. Although Mark's obviously a bit more recognisable than the rest of us. But, and you know, and so the band's always approached the whole experience a bit like that, really. Okay, and you mentioned um, making the next uh, record there. The next record obviously became the seminal Brothers in Arms. Now, how did you feel going into the studio to, to produce this album on the back of a number one album? Did you feel any added pressure or anything like that? Um, I th not not consciously. I, I think that you know we approached Brothers in Arms like we approached all the others. We found we had a bit more time. I think uh, uh, up until this point, up until about 1983, we finished the Love Over Gold tour, and we didn't actually go to America on that on that one because we. Sorry, that was my window banging. Um, we, you know, we were pretty exhausted. I mean, we'd we'd, we'd done an enormous amount of touring. Yeah. Um, over the five years before um, before the end of Love of a Gold tour, and we were so we needed a break, and in fact, actually, that was that was the time to take the break after Love of a Gold, and and um, you know, so we we took our time with Brothers in Arms a bit more than we did with the others, but we still approached it in the same kind of way. You know, it's quite a lot of this is about the kind of songs that Mark was bringing to the table. These the, the, the Brothers in Arms songs needed a little bit more consideration, I think. Uh, there was a quite a, 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 a sort of depth of music on that um, on that record, which took a lot of people by surprise. And of course, technology was changing. I mean, the whole digital thing was starting, and then the whole you know, CD revolution. And I mean, it, you know, there was a whole lot of things going on right then, which was you know not only just artistically but also commercially, with the CD being pushed. And MTV was a big deal then, of course. It had just come over from America. And well, um, I was just going to say there, obviously you were kind of very much at the front, the vanguard in terms of things like that. When you mentioned CDs, the first album to sell a million copies on compact disc itself. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah and then obviously you mentioned MTV. It was the first um, video played on MTV Europe. It became almost a poster song, didn't it? The poster video for MTV kind of generation. Yes, it's ironic, really, because I mean, the the song itself is a bit of a, a bit of an iro ironic view of the whole kind of uh, MTV thing. You know, mm. uh, uh, America didn't understand the irony of that at all. So, of course, <laughs> it was put on, it was put on heavy rotation in America, which was thank you very much. Um, that became a very big song in the states. Money for nothing. My goodness. Um, and in fact, actually, when you want to talk about stats and stuff, that was the first time we had a number one album, number one single in America, which was, uh, that's kind of a, 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 a bit of a milestone really for the band as well. Yeah, very big deal. So just talking about Money for Nothing, um, what happened with Sting? How did he get involved? Was he involved early on or was he drafted in a bit later or how did that come about? Well, there's another life's coincidences. I mean, the whole thing, we were, we were just in Montserrat having, you know, just 
making the record and um you know drinking beer in andy's bar afterwards and all the rest of it and having a very nice time although i did have to say this was the caribbean and it rained for six weeks solid <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't much sort of time out of the studio. We, so I suppose that's the reason probably why we got on with a bit of work. But um, Sting uh, turned up in, um, uh, I think it was January. He was on, he, he'd already recorded with the police down there, I think, at, 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 at um, George's studio, uh, George Martin's studio. And so he'd, lo- he'd fallen in love with Montserrat and he was a great windsurfer. And so he'd come down, actually, he was on holiday. And um, we heard he was around and he, and he knew we were there. So he came up, we'd met him a few times before and he came up to listen to some, some, uh, some of the music one night and have supper with us at the studio. And uh, he was listening to Money for Nothing and he just turned around, I think he turned around to us and said, you bastards, you've done it again. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he said, that's, a, you know, that's, uh, that's fantastic. That's a really, that, that's, that's going to go, that one. So we thought, well, this, the sage has spoken. So Mark, Mark said to him, well, if you think it's so good, why don't you go and sing on it? So he literally walked into the, into the, into the studio, got in front of a microphone, and just what you hear is what he did. He just sort of made, you know, and then, of course, we tidied it up a bit afterwards, you know, but it was a very spontaneous um, addition to the record, really, and it, wasn't, it was completely unexpected. We didn't know he was going to be there, but... Uh, there you are. That's how these things happen in life. Indeed, indeed. And I just want to ask you as well, is it true that um, Walk of Life was almost left off the album? Well, it's interesting, that one. That I mean, at the time, I don't think um, Neil Dorsman, who was the producer stroke engineer with Mark on the, on the album, was terribly keen on it. He thought it was um, too poppy or something or whatever, uh, you know, not... But in 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 effect, I think I think I've got a lot of respect for Neil, and he's he's fabulous. But I think he might have got that wrong because I think <laughs> because it was it was in a sense it balanced the album out. I think you know it gave it a, it gave it a very wide spectrum having that song on it. I don't think Mark will probably ever play it again. He's sort of he's got a bit of an aversion to it himself now, but. Uh, I have to say, whenever I play it, which I do, um, people really love it. I mean, and um, I don't like to disappoint people when I go and play. I think there's no point in going out and playing if you're just going to give people a bad time. So, um, but it's one of those peculiar songs which seems to have captured people. It was, I mean, it was a massive hit in the States again and, and really all over the world. So who knows? I mean, who knows about these things? I mean, if we'd left it off... Um, Nobody would, ever, would have ever, it would never have come to light, you know. So, I don't know. Very true. Now, on the back of that, obviously, you did another big tour. You, you used to doing these big tours, but this was a huge tour, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Something like 250 shows across the world. Now, that obviously took a, a bit of a toll on the band, didn't it? And it was after that tour that you guys <laughs> decided to take a break, putting it politely. <laughs> a slight understatement, I think. Paul. <laughs> was it a break? Or was it, that was it, we're calling it quits? So what was the decision at the time? Was there always a, a, a thought that you would come back and play together? Um, well, we came back, of course, and did the Mandela concert mm-hmm. in 1988, which was a celebration of his 70th birthday, if you remember. Yeah. And that, that, that actually was sent out to 600 million people around the world, which was, when you consider that Live Aid was a billion, mm-hmm. it wasn't far behind that. 
So we, we'd come together for that show, but uh, I, uh, you know, and Eric, of course, you know, Eric Clapton played rhythm guitar on that, which yep. was a great pleasure, of course. If I, I, I think if I remember rightly, I'd sort of resign myself to the fact that we'd, we'd probably, you know, we'd, we'd probably done enough. Mm-hmm. And so Mark and I were having lunch one day, I think in uh, shortly after the Mandela concert. And I think he'd probably enjoyed getting the band back together again, to be honest. Um, he'd gone off. He'd done. A, he'd gone off and done a few other things, uh, as is as was his wont in between each of the albums. They're you know, like local heroes, Stevie Nicks and Stevie Dan and uh, Bob Dylan, and you know, goodness, you know, dropping a few names here. But, um, <laughs> you know, he, you know, he'd done a lot of work with other people, and I think he was he wanted to change the way that he wrote, and in fact, that was starting to happen with on the on the on Every Street tour, which. Uh, on the album, sorry, the talk, the talk came later, but uh, so I was a bit surprised when we sat down and had lunch one day and he said, do you want to make another record? And I went, I'm free. Because <laughs> 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 of course he and I were the only two surviving original members by this point. Absolutely. So you got back um, together, as you said, you, you released on every street and then you toured, it was probably even bigger, wasn't it? Than the Brothers in Arms tour. Yeah, it was bigger and more exhausting. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, Getting towards the end of that was, I, I think we all realised that probably that was that was enough. That was the end. And it was a good time to stop, and um, uh, that was a that, that was a big tour. That was a big tour, and I think it took us all a bit of time to get over all that. Actually, to be honest, I mean it was, it was it was exhausting both mentally, physically, and emotionally. Actually. Now, as well as the, the Dire Straits music, you've always kind of recorded your own music, haven't you? You had solo albums, even back in the 80s too. Now, is I that something... I get around to that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you enjoy having a bit more control then when you're doing your own stuff? Well, it's a different kind of thing. I mean, I, um, I'd started writing in, in the 80s and not really spent an awful lot of energy on it because we were so busy. But, but when we got the break after... Um, Love of the Gold, I, I decided to go and put some tunes down, which I did, and um, uh, really loved the process of, of actually, if you like, being in complete control, because, you know, there's a certain sense of democracy in the Straits, but ultimately Mark decides, you know, how this thing pans out because they're his songs. And that's always been a, a very respected uh, view of anybody involved, including myself. So I, I know what it feels like to have complete control, and I really enjoyed that. I've enjoyed making the record. Yeah, I've made quite a few records now. I mean, I make one every couple of years, really. Um, the last one coming up for AI came out last year. I'm working on stuff now, so... You know, that's I was going to say, you, you mentioned you, you're writing in the process of writing now. Do you have many songs ready to go, or do you have any plan of when it will come out? Well, I've been putting some... Actually, during lockdown, I worked with my son, Harry, um, on some little sketches that I've been working on just to get some ideas together because it helps sometimes to put roughs down just to work with and then think mm, that's that's not so good let's change that so and because he's he's actually quite good at um, record he, he makes his own music electronic music he's a he's a DJ Harry so I worked worked away with him on some tunes and then he's gone back to to London now to work on his stuff and various other things and so I'm still putting sketches down now with my son-in-law, who's also a record producer, would you believe? So, <laughs> keeping it in the family. family. Yeah, keeping it in the family. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm always busy doing that. And, of course, I, I spend a lot of time painting as well, which I, which I don't love to do. Lovely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, John, and uh, I wish you all the best. And when the new music does uh, surface, we would, we'd love to chat with you again and just find out how all that went. 
Well, well we will. I mean, I'll, I'll, you'll be the first to know, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. What a fantastic guest with more fantastic insights into the world of rock, love stories and all that sort of stuff behind how the songs got together and and just shows you how a series of coincidences and chance happenings can really change everything. If you want to watch the full interview, including a few bits we didn't have time to fit into the podcast, go to our YouTube channel, search for Vintage Rock Pod, and you'll be able to see the man himself talking there on the video call I did with him a couple of weeks ago. Right, I had some good feedback to the Small Faces Top 5 that I did last week, so let's see how I get on with compiling my Top 5 for Dire Straits. It's not going to be easy, is it, given the number of records these guys have sold in excess of 100 million, but let's give it a shot. Now the band were no strangers to long songs, and at number 5 it's an 8 minute masterpiece, taken from the album Making Movies. It's claimed to be semi-autobiographical, Mark Knopfler writing about a trip to the fairground at Whitley Bay when he was younger. You can rock away, rock away with my number 5 choice, Tunnel of Love. A slightly shorter song at number 4, just the 7 minutes, it's a real masterpiece, emotional. It's a building, brooding soundscape that depicts the solidarity of soldiers in war. The video was just as good as well, with black and white images of the band over footage of World War One, which went on to win the Best Music Video Award at the 1987 Grammys. From the album of the same name, at number four is Brothers in Arms. My choice at number three is the one you'll all know, the one that was played what felt like every half an hour on MTV. It was number one in the US for three weeks and features Sting on backing vocals. It was the big hit from the album Brothers in Arms. Number three is Money for Nothing. At two, it's the song that started it all off, emerged during the heady days of punk and stood out like a sore thumb, a beautiful sore thumb, mind, and went top ten all over the world. From their self-titled debut album, my choice for number two is Sultans of Swing. And at number one from 1980 in the Making Movies album, it's a clever twist on literary works. It's a tale of a young man who feels jilted by his lover, used by his lover to further her career. It was a gold-selling single in the UK. It's beautifully written, it's beautifully played on the guitar. The vintage rock pod choice for Dire Straits' number one song is the beautiful Romeo and Juliet. A big shout-out to Private Investigations, Industrial Disease, and another not-so-obvious choice in Ride Across the River. All excellent songs that I love and just missing out on my top five. And that's without some of their other well-known songs as well. Big hits like uh, Walk of Life and Twisting by the Pool. If you think Dire Straits are just about money for nothing, then I definitely recommend you go back and check out their back catalogue. Mark Knopfler, brilliant songwriter and an even better guitarist. Now, carrying on with the theme of I Want My MTV, I was trying to think of a guest for the show that would know everything about the 80s, like 80s music videos and rock bands from the decade. And there was one standout choice for me. It's a man who's presented a podcast, an 80s podcast, for over 15 years. And with his co-host Brad Williams, they host an 80s cruise each year with bands playing off the coast of the US. Welcome to the Vintage Rock Pod, Steve Spears from Stuck in the 80s. Oh, hi, Paul. Nice to be here. This is fun. As you said, 15 years is a long time. It's hard to imagine that we've been around for almost twice as long as the decade actually lasted. <laughs> it is a bit bonkers, isn't it? Absolutely. And you spoke to over 100 um, famous stars from the 80s, including 10 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think at the time that I talked to most of them, only a couple of them maybe had already been in the rock hall, and and rockers themselves kind of they they kind of go one way or the other. Either they don't give a damn about it, 
and they don't want to talk about it. Or, you know, it's, it's this honor that, you know, they're touched by. So it's people run hot and cold on the Rock Hall. And, and so are the people I've interviewed. When you speak about people you've interviewed, I've seen some of the names that you've interviewed. I've heard some of the interviews you've done as well, which are fantastic. Um, who stands out for you as, as being among the best? The, the one that, I, that really became more of a conversation and less of an interview was Steve Perry uh, after he had left Journey. He, about 10 years ago, he came out, he remastered a, his solo album, Street Talk, and he had remastered a greatest hits album. And so he was doing like maybe two or three interviews. And I got him at the end of the day and it was supposed to last 20 minutes and it lasted closer to an hour. And we, I mean, I think I threw out my notes after about the first 10 minutes and it just became a conversation between <laughs> two guys who, you know, I wouldn't say we had similar problems, but we had problems and we were kind of talking to each other through it. It was, it was really just one of those lifetime, you know, bucket list things. I'm glad I got a chance to do it. And it's always nice when you get an interviewee that's just happy to speak to you as well. And it, I think your charm is the fact that you kind of lure everyone in because you are a big fan of, of the decade, of the music that was produced and of these people that you speak to as, as well. Yeah, I, I'm not there really to ask any gotcha questions or to try to trap them. I just want to talk about, you know, tell tell me the stories behind your work and let's, let's everyone get to know you a little bit better. And it's, it's, it can be a challenge, but then you have someone like a John Parr who is just couldn't be nicer. And just, I mean, he and I could have talked for four hours. We, we talked for one hour, but it, it, we could have talked for an entire day. It was, it was such a, a lovely experience. So when you, when you meet an artist like that, you just really, you know, you're, you can't stop smiling for a week. Absolutely. And something else that you probably don't stop smiling for for a week is, is your 80s voyage cruises as well that you do. I mean, tell us about them. They sound fantastic. Yeah. So about five years ago, a company in St. Louis start, that was uh, had done a lot of theme cruises, a lot of jazz cruises. And theme cruises are still kind of a, we're, we're still kind of a new thing here in the U.S., and they came out with this 80s cruise. And I found out about it completely randomly. I saw a tweet by um, Alan Hunter from MTV about it. And so I checked it out and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was this boat that goes to the Caribbean and it was a real cruise line, not a some fly-by-night operation. And they had, I think, they had 10 bands that first year. They had Huey Lewis. Uh, they had Richard Marks. They had Belinda Carlisle. It, 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 was, it was just one of these crazy opportunities. And so... We joined on, and and Brad and myself did uh, a lot of trivia sessions for the for the sh- ship, and we also did some live podcasting. And it was just, and everything about the trip is '80s immersed. I mean, you hear '80s music in the hallway every night is a theme night, so it's either uh, nerds versus jocks, or it's uh, Halloween horror night, or it's you know, every day you see people in these costumes that it must have taken them five years to come up with. It was. When it's over, you feel like you need another vacation, but it's still <laughs> one of the best experiences I've ever done. Yeah, that's a sign of a good trip, that is, right there. And uh, just speaking out Stuck in the 80s, I mean, where can we hear that? Stuck in the 80s is on all your podcast apps. Uh, and if you want to, you can always go to our official website. It's at sit80s.com. Brilliant. That's exactly what we're going to do. Right. But what we're going to do next, though, is we're going to quiz you. Now, I hope you're up for a bit of quiz. It's just a bit of fun. Nothing too challenging. Well, some might be, but we'll see how we get on. And um, what I like to do is pick a topic that kind of slightly relates to the guest that we've had on this week. Now, as I said, it was John Ilsley from Dire Straits and uh, their famous video Money for Nothing became a bit of a staple, didn't it, on MTV. Um, So the quiz is I want my MTV. It's all about uh, music videos from rock bands in the 80s. Okay. Okay. Sounds fun. 
Good stuff. Right, as I said, you've got three minutes. Let's see how you get on. Oh, jeez. Question one. What year did MTV first launch? It was 1981, right? Question two. Which group won the inaugural MTV Music Video Award for the best video in 1984? Uh, That's a great question. I'm going to say the cars. The cars, okay. Question three. Which band's video featured grotesque puppets of the likes of Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan? That's an easy one. That's Genesis. Okay, question four. In which video does Steven Tyler of Aerosmith kick through a wall to meet another band? Oh, yes. Classic. Uh, Walk This Way. Question five. Which band that spanned the punk, rock, and new wave genres in their career had what is commonly referred to as the first rap video played on MTV? Probably the Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys. Question six. Which song's video showed two early animated removal men lifting items and resenting the rock star's lifestyle? Uh, Money for Nothing by uh, uh, Dire Straits. What a classic. I've heard of them. Uh, question seven. Which mega band were the first to have a heavy metal song played on MTV? First metal band to have a video played on MTV? Yep. <sighs> I'm going to... Uh, probably going to... Is ACDC metal? I'm not sure. Oh, man, that's tough. Um, Twisted Sister. Twisted Sister. Question eight. Of the first 20 songs played on MTV, three acts appeared twice. Can you name one of them? Uh, Rob Stewart. Rob Stewart. Question nine. Which massive hit song featured a video which begins with all four members of the band saying, I'm on my way? Uh, Home Sweet Home. No, 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 no. It begins with it? Begins with that? That's how the video begins, with all four members of the band saying, I'm on my way. I, 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 <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I should know, but I don't know. You're gonna, I'm going to feel bad when you tell me. Okay. Are you sticking with your first answer then? I'm, I'll stick with my first answer. It's okay. Home Sweet Home by Motley. We've got 30 seconds left. Oh, here we go. Tony Kittane starting a number of music videos and eventually married the lead singer of which band? White Snake. Question 11. Which band's music video featured them robbing a bank using their guitars and stealing their own gold disc? <sighs> Ten seconds left. Um, it's not Berlin, no more words, but I, I, that's the one that comes to mind. <laughs> and last question. In 1985, which band released an Alice in Wonderland-inspired video to accompany their single Don't Come Round Here No More? Start it I'm petting the Heartbreakers. We'll get that in. We might get 12 questions in. Let's run through what you got then. Oh, that is tense, isn't it? Yes, yes. Some of those, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kick the spot, it's myself. Difficult. So question one, yes, 1981 was the year that MTV launched in America. So one out of one. Uh, which group won the inaugural MTV Music Video Award for Best Video in 1984? You said The Cars. It was The Cars, you might think. There you go. Well done. Yes. <laughs> yes. Question three, which band's video featured grotesque puppets the likes of Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan? It was Genesis. Well done. And question four, which video does Steven Tyler kick through the wall to meet another band? It was Walk This Way. 
Question five, which band that spanned the punk rock and new wave genres in their career had what is commonly referred to as the first rap video played on MTV? You said Beastie Boys. It's actually Blondie, believe it or not, Rapture. Question oh, six. Yeah. What song's uh, video showed two early animated removal men? It was, of course, Money for Nothing. Which mega band were the first to have a heavy metal song played on MTV? You said Twisted Sister. It was Iron Maiden with their Iron Maiden song. <sighs> Of the first 20 songs played on MT3, MTV, sorry, three acts appeared twice. Can you name one of them? It was Rod Stewart. He was one of them. He had uh, She Won't Dance With Me in Sailing. The other two were Ario Speedwagon, Take It On The Run and Keep On Loving You, and The Pretenders with Brass In Pocket and Message Of Love. Well done. Nice. Question nine. Which massive hit song featured a video which begins with all four members of the band saying, I'm on my way? Bit of umming and ahhing over this, but it was Motley Crue, Home Sweet Home. I don't don't remember the beginning, but it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, Absolutely. They're all in separate situations and all getting a phone call and they all go, I'm on my way. That's how it goes. Uh, (laughs) Question 10. Tony Kittane starting a number of music videos and eventually married David Coverdale, of course, of Whitesnake. That was correct. Which band's music video featured them robbing a bank and using their guitars to steal their own gold disc? It was Judas Priest breaking the law. And you got as far as number 12, which was 1985 with Alice in Wonderland inspired video. It was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Well done, Steve. You managed to get nine out of 12. That's not too bad in three minutes. I still feel bad. I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> At least I got dire straits. Yeah. Absolutely. They're on the that cruise in 2022. So. Ah, fantastic. So have you got this uh, all so, lined up for 2022? You mentioned it there. I mean, 2021 was postponed because of the COVID pandemic. So it's now in March of 2022. And uh, I think there's still cabins available. So come, you know, come along. Let's go watch Dire Straits together. Absolutely. Fantastic news. Well, thank you very much, Steve. You've been an absolute pleasure to have on the Vintage Rock Pod and you've done well on the quiz as well. So you can hold your head high. Thanks, Paul. And a huge thanks to Steve Spears from Stuck in the 80s there. Uh, I decided to uh, mix the quiz up slightly this time around, put a time limit on it and jazz it up a little bit. And I think the 9 out of 12 was pretty good considering that limitation. Now it's time to go back stateside again and catch up with our good friend Maudi over in Los Angeles from the History of Rock Facebook page to see what he's got lined up for us on this episode of the Vintage Rock Pod. Hey, Paul, thanks for having me again. Um, Very excited to talk about... uh... Ozzy Osbourne today, one of the greatest uh, English vocalists of all time, huh? Absolutely, and there's some stories to tell of him. I'm, I'm sure there's no doubt about that. Let's see, let's take a look at a couple of facts from his, you know, up and down career throughout his life that uh, I think will be safe to talk about on the podcast that are not too unsavory because, trust me, there's some <laughs> stuff here that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a Tommy Lee story about you know, some bodily fluids being thrown on some walls on a hotel room. So if you want to know more about that, go ahead and, uh, you know. <laughs> we'll hit you up. So go on then, throw some at us. What, what have you got lined up for straight away then? Go on. So I've got one that uh, really stood out to me is uh, one night Ozzy was out obviously on a bender, you know, just going crazy. But he blacked out and attempted to um, murder his wife, his own wife. Uh, he was so inebriated, he just woke up days later not knowing what happened and he woke up and, and he had been charged with attempting to slay his wife. He didn't even know what he did. But can you imagine that? Just going on a bender, waking up days later, and, and the police are telling you, hey, look, the, you know, you've been charged with this, this crime. And what is it? You tried to kill your wife. <laughs> and the craziest thing is she's still with him. <laughs> right. She's like, you know, the person that, that got him together and, and got him to, like, you know, do OzFest and, and get into actually 
uh, you know, making money off of his name and, and what he can do. So I don't know. I think uh, she's great and, and definitely a solid rock wife. You know, Sharon, definitely one for the books. <laughs> hey, go on then. Give us another fact about Ozzy Osbourne then. I found an interesting one that was actually, um, I mean, he, he might have been drinking or not, but this was a little later in his life. So I, I believe he was a little sober. But around 2004, he was for some reason driving around in an ATV. I guess he was like on vacation, you know, one of those four wheeler quadra tracks, right? He just flipped over, knocked himself unconscious, and he was like in a coma for like eight days. And according to his bodyguard, who was there to help him, he had passed away twice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ozzy really has nine lives or more, huh? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely go on then give us another one i like these i like these. they're good this one's an interesting one i think that um he never had a driver's license because he was never able to sober up long enough to take the exam since he was young so he was just so what do you say knackered right <laughs> he, he didn't get a license up until the age of 60 and and i guess this is like the most uh you know infamous fact about uh ozzy that you know he bit the the head off of a bat or, you know, all that. But um, I actually think that the, 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 where it all started is he went into a meeting with a couple of, you know, execs, like record label executives and just higher ups. And he brought a dove <laughs> and he bit the head off of a dove in front of them in a meeting. He hold on, whoa, whoa, whoa! We, we, we've heard we've heard the story of the bat on the stage, and apparently he didn't realize it was a real bat and all that sort of stuff. But hold on, he took a dove into um, what is essentially a business meeting, right? And proceeded to do the same thing. Yes. What? Yes. So I, I believe this was even even before the bat. Um, so, but I could be wrong on that one. But here, it, yes, here it says according to Ozzy, he went in there just bit this dove's head off during the meeting because i don't know i guess they were just so impressed with like the fact that they would do that you know or that ozzy would do that it's like whoa this is dedication and like metal hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine being in that room i'm, I'm just gonna say we don't condone this by uh, any stretch of the imagination don't go biting any bird's heads <laughs> off <laughs> definitely not you will not get a record deal nowadays by doing that i think only <laughs> only they could pull it off huh yeah, you'll only get a criminal record. Yes, that's the only yeah, way you'll get. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's some fantastic facts about Ozzy Osbourne, Maudi. I mean, well, if you want to find out even more crazy facts, what do we do? Well, you just got to go to uh, History of Rock on Facebook. Give us a like, give us a follow, and uh, I will throw so much good stuff at you that you you know there's too much. Uh, you can also find out how Ozzy almost burned his house down while making a sandwich. <laughs> what? You're making a sandwich? Where, where, where's the fire involved in that? Well, uh, you're going to have to go to Ranker.com and find out because uh, <laughs> I can't tell you. Tell you what, that's a tease right there. Thank you very much, Maudie, for joining us on episode two of the Vintage Rock Pod. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Not a problem. Not a problem. And a big thanks to Maudie for joining us again. Well, that's it for episode two of the Vintage Rock Pod. Again, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the pod on whatever podcast directory you listen to them on. Give us a like and follow on Facebook and Instagram and check out the YouTube channel as well. Uh, coming up on episode three, then, I've got a guitarist from a big Scottish rock group that had a really defined, distinctive sound, a number one album, a hit in America, and are still very active and would have been touring now if it wasn't for all this COVID stuff. So please look out for episode three when it lands next Monday, the 19th of October. 
Until then, take it easy and keep listening to your rock music. And if you come across anyone who isn't a fan, just tell them, my music is better than yours. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.